Welcome to Relative Digressions. Uh, I'm Renna. I'm Flick. Uh, and this is the podcast where we uh, rewatch classic Doctor Who. Yeah, so the idea here is that uh, we're both enfranchised fans. Well, what does enfranchised fans mean? So, uh, in discussing The Timeless Children, when that aired, for example, uh, you knew what the Morbius Doctors were, which is not something a casual fan knows. That's true, but I haven't seen the episode, uh, The Brain of Morbius, is it called, which has the Morbius Doctors in. I just knew enough about the fandom, and and obviously I've been engaged in some of the discussions beforehand to know what was going on there, uh, which is very different to you, because you've seen, I think, all of Classic Who. Is that right? All that can be seen, and I've heard the rest of it. Um... So, yeah, broadly, the idea here is that I am revisiting these episodes, but I I am taking you along as my companion to visit the past uh, so that I have some fresh eyes to bring me a new perspective on history. Right, precisely. I am am your companion. You are the Time Lord, and we are travelling relative digressions in space. Yeah, so let's crack on. All right, so today we're going to be discussing the meddling monk. Uh, sorry, no, it's the, the time, time meddler. meddler. Right, yes, which which is it has the character in it, the monk or the meddling monk. So I have I watched this for the first time the other day. So I think we're going to start with me giving my thoughts. Yeah, is uh, it occurred to me to ask afterwards? Is this the first sixties Who you've actually seen? Uh, yeah, it, 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 well, I watched the pilot for an Earthly Child once, I think. Funnily enough. Because the DVD of An Unearthly Child plays the pilot and then it plays episode one. And so when I first watched it, I watched the pilot and then I thought it was just playing the first episode again. So I skipped through it. And so for about 10 years, I'd only seen the unaired pilot and not actually seen the aired version of An Unearthly Child. Amazing. Right. So, uh, yeah, uh, this, is, this, this, is the, this is not the first time I've seen the first Doctor, but this is the first time I've seen the first Doctor played by William Hartnell, if you see what I mean. I actually, I wrote a note about that, that your introduction to the first Doctor is David Bradley, which is quite an odd way to come at it. Well, it is and it isn't, because, I mean, I've been a fan of Doctor Who only really since, of course, the revival, but I've gone back and you watch episodes and little clips on YouTube or whatever. And I, I think I've watched clips from the third Doctor, in which he, he appears, I think. And then I've watched clips from the fifth Doctor, where in which he doesn't appear, but there is another actor playing the first Doctor. And kind of pop cultural osmosis tells you a little bit what the first Doctor is going to be like. But actually, that's very different seeing it in person. So, impressions. He's quite funny. Like, I'd always heard the second Doctor is the, who I haven't seen much of either, only really clips, is kind of the, the clownish one. And I can see that's probably true. But there's a sort of slight, there's a, there's a, there is a comedy attribute to some of, he, he's this kind of slightly fussy old man, but he's quite funny about it. And I thought that was, that was quite interesting. And actually something I quite enjoyed in the episode. It's something that in the first season, he's more of the commonly perceived grouchy doctor. And then when Dennis Spooner turns up as a writer for The Reign of Terror, which is the final final story of the first season he really starts injecting a lot more comedy into the scripts time meddler is a dennis spooner script incidentally right and actually of course having only grown up with 2005 who onwards that feels like natural to me I mean, I grew up with my fourth episode of Doctor Who or whatever is being the Slovene. You know, a bit, a bit of humour in Doctor Who is something I'm very used to. But um, one thing I found quite interesting about it was the Doctor, I guess. Um, he's just quite... He just does stuff. He's quite mischievous. Like There's this sort of slight twinkle in his eye sort of thing. He's very willful. 
it works really well in retrospect because he is quite childlike, which obviously wasn't planned at the time. But in retrospect, he's the youngest doctor and he does have that like he's a child in an old body kind of thing. Yes, it's um, to compare to a doctor I am familiar with. Matt Smith is playing an older man, but a younger body. And that's really interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, he mutters to himself a lot. There's this great bit, and it's very cheesy, and I don't, I didn't really like it for itself, but it's quite funny, where he almost like looks to camera and goes, ah, yes, 1066, which, as you know, children, is when. And it's, it's almost a bit like the episode stops, and they're like, take out your pocketbooks now. It's, it's really funny that you picked up on that, because there's a really funny behind-the-scenes story about that moment, which is that... That isn't how it was scripted at all. Oh, really? But William Hartnell couldn't remember his lines and just started lecturing to camera about the history of the piece. Right, right, right. And that's then, exactly how it feels. It that's, feels like that's literally what happened. And the man, um, he's clear. I think one of my issues with him is that, bless him, the man cannot always remember what his lines he's meant to say. Uh, the first episode in particular, William Hartnell's clearly not having a good day. <laughs> He's just, um, but yeah, that, it was such a funny moment. He was like, I oh, ten sixty six, which um, yes, and then uh, mm, yes, and then he has to go to. What's interesting is it's really relevant to the plot. It's like 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 you could see them writing in a. We don't think you remember ten sixty six. Of course, I mean the the interesting thing is he does it to camera. Whereas yeah. in the modern era of Doctor Who, I feel like you would actually have a scene a bit like that. But you'd have, I'm just imagining uh, David Tennant go like, well, you know, the Normans, I'm just imagining, uh, well, as he stalks across a clifftop with Rose in tow or something like that. But it would all be, it would all be done via dialogue. Yes, it's a great pity that Barbara isn't here. Now, if my memory of English history serves me right, we're about to have a Viking invasion, and very soon. Now, let me think, uh, Harold came north to defeat Hedrada, the Norwegian king. Yes, now that was before he faced William the Conqueror at Hastings. <laughs> it's all very interesting. Yes, that's very, 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 very interesting. <laughs> Actually, there's not much time, and I don't know if this is atypical for this episode, but there's not much time with the Doctor and the Companions. I wasn't sure if that was to a degree because you're dealing with an, old, an older man. So a lot of the action has to be done via the companions sort of in separate stuff. And you get the Doctor basically for key scenes. But he's only actually in this kind of half the time, isn't he? That's because that's because William Hartnell had his statutory holiday during the recording, which is why he's not in episode two at all. Oh, right. So it, it, it's actually just something about this particular episode. Yeah, well, absolutely. I picked up on that. Because in episode two, yeah, they think he's going to be in the cell and then he's not. Yeah. So he has a couple of lines shouted through the door that are pre-recorded, but he, he just wasn't he just wasn't there that week. Yeah, fascinating. I find his relationship with the monk very interesting. And, and this is the first time another Time Lord has shown up, right? There's, and we don't, in fact, hear the phrase Time Lord. So the, the name Time Lords doesn't show up until the War Games, like right at the end of the Troughton era. Right, yeah. Until then, it's just um, another of my people. All right, so I guess I'm going to start talking a little bit about the actual story. So um, absolutely love, absolutely love the gramophone reveal. 
I mean, that's such a little clever moment. Yeah, so this is the moment at the end of the first episode uh, where the Doctor goes into the monastery and it's empty and throughout the episode we've heard these monks chanting and the Doctor just goes into a back room and there's an anachronistic gramophone and he takes the needle off and the chanting stops because it's diagetically being played on the gramophone and that moment is it's just so good as... Uh, a curveball introduction to, oh, we're doing something new with the format. I, I, I think I could write a whole essay about just that moment. Yeah, no, and and the fact that it is the... You hear it for most of the first episode, I think. There's a moment, and I'm genuinely not sure if it's on purpose or not, where the chanting, when the Doctor's listening to the chanting when he's down on the beach where the Saxon huts are, and the soundtrack just warps slightly, and I don't know if that's an actual technical fault or a clue. I can't quite that's tell. That's really interesting. Yeah, no, it's quite cool. What, one of the things that really struck me as I was watching it, the first time I watched it would have been probably around 2007-ish, before the Moffat era. And watching it now, I kept thinking, like, this is like a proto-Stephen sort of Moffat-style story. Yes, I think I think you're probably right. I know I've mentioned this to you before we were recording, but this is the first pseudo historical. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, I didn't realise that uh, it was near the 900th anniversary of the Battle of Hastings, although obviously it was. Oh yeah, of course it would have been. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. I, I mean, one thing I noted when I went back to it is I was thinking about it, and I was thinking I can't remember how much I actually enjoy the historical bit with the Saxons and the Vikings. Um. And what I realised is that there's actually very little historical stuff in the episode. It's it's mostly in episode two whilst Hartnell's on holiday. Because I was going to talk about the pseudo-historical, the idea of adding this sci-fi story on top of the traditional historical. But in actual point of fact, what I'd forgotten until I sort of went back to it is that they mostly just jettison all the historical-like aspects. It's funny... People talk about in the pseudo historicals how the historical is just set dressing. It's quite funny how it instantly became that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, although it, the the history is integral to his plot, and I think that is relevant. He is not merely in 1066. His plot is directly about 1066. That's true. Even though it doesn't appear much in the actual thing. But it's a little bit like how in Day of the Moon, that's not really about the moon landing. Yeah. But you couldn't really tell that story without it being the moon landing. Yeah. In a sense, I hadn't thought about this until you were just saying that just now. It does kind of tap into what the historicals were doing in the... The pure historicals up until now basically all have the same conflict, which is you can't change history, not one line, except there will be something that the travellers want to change. And in a sense, this is the same story, just the conflict becomes dealing with another Time Lord who is there to change the thing. Right, which is quite interesting. It's interesting as well, actually, because at the very start of the episode, um, the TARDIS is actually a, a, a real feature in this, uh, and TARDISes, I suppose, are a real feature the, in this Yeah, episode. this is a thing that I found quite odd, 
even in the context of the monk being in it and the monk's TARDIS, that the Doctor's TARDIS is usually just a device to get in and out of a story. Like, even in later stories that are more Time Lordy and what have you, the fact that the TARDIS possibly having disappeared is like a central dramatic point in the middle of the story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's quite unusual. Because modern Who does this quite a lot, but it, does classic Who not really do it so much? Not very often, and definitely not this early. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, but actually, one of, one, of, one of the things I meant as well is that we have this whole discussion, because this is the, this is, uh, the Stephen, who is a new companion in this episode, I think. Yeah, so he just joins at the end of the previous story. So funnily enough, Peter Purvis was actually cast as a character called Morton Dill, which is a classic Terry Nation name who's an American yokel who's only in one scene of the chase. And then he made such a good impression that they decided to have him back as Stephen in the final episode. At that point, it wasn't decided he was going to be a companion. And Terry Nation just left the final scene open because they hadn't worked out what the TARDIS crew was going to be. So hypothetically, you could have had Ian leaves and... Stephen leaves with him, and it's Barbara and Vicky in the TARDIS, or like something really weird, or just the Doctor and Barbara. But, you know, I oh oh, I like uh, of the uh, talking of the companions. So you've got Stephen and what's the other one called? Vicky. Yeah, quite like both of them. I find Vicky being quite childlike, quite odd. I, I think part of it, part of it is like I said. I mean, she is only supposed to be a child. Oh, is she meant to be actually a child? Yeah, I think she's a. I mean, a teenager. Right, is it because she doesn't? I think part of it is that she doesn't look quite like a child, but then she acts. Yeah, it's it's a bit weird. I think the, the one of the weird things I'm picking up on is there's a bit of like I'm fairly sure there's a couple of bits of sixties sexism essentially, um, or at least things that feel a bit like hmm. Um, and there's something about the way young you know young women get infantilized that made me a bit like hmm. Not sure about this, but actually I did really like her character. I th- I thought she was quite funny. Uh, Stephen, Stephen and Vicky are one of my favourite pairs. But actually, in contrast to what you're saying, like I think Vicky spends quite a lot of the story getting to be the, you know, she's got seniority and she's explaining stuff to Stephen. Well, no, yeah, so that actually that absolutely is true, and actually I really like that aspect. I really like, I, I you know, I don't think I have ever seen it on New Who. Certainly not like that, because because actually she fulfills the Doctor for him. The Doctor really does not explain much to Stephen at all. No. It's Vicky who does everything for him, who basically is trying to convince him that this is a time machine, etc, etc, etc. The only thing in New Who that sort of emulates it is when Mickey joins the TARDIS and roses to Mickey in a similar vein. Yeah, so that is true, but they had an existing relationship, which yeah, I think yeah. came to tone. Yeah, definitely. Um, whereas Stephen and Vicky are, are relative, relative strangers, or mostly strangers. And she's, yeah, it's quite good. Because it, it's funny, because I know this is mid-season, but you... The, this the is actually gimmick. the season finale of season two. Oh, is it? Oh, that's quite interesting. That's, because... that's why it's got the um, special end credits with the Starscape. Oh, I hadn't picked up on that, but... Or rather, I hadn't picked up that they were special. Oh, that's quite interesting. Yeah, so... Because actually, it's funny you said it because I was thinking that in many ways it's uh, it's got that. If you were going to do that gimmick in New Who, it would almost be as a soft reboot type of thing. It feels like a Stephen Moffat 
season opener. Yes, although you'd have to work out how you got the person in the thing. But yeah, sure. But yes. Yeah. No, I see what you mean. One of my favourite running jokes that subtly reinforces that Vicky is like the more senior and has done this before mm-hmm. is that um, there's this running joke where Vicky and Stephen both sort of spring into action and walk in opposite directions yes, and then Stephen turns around and follows her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is then... I it's really paid like off that. in the last episode. There's there's a line that's not even played as a joke where they decide to go off and do something and Stephen just says, you lead, which is like the, the final payoff of that joke where he's kind of learned to just follow Vicky. Yeah, I really like that, actually. Um, it was just quite funny. Um, yeah. There's a lovely physicality to it all. Talking of Stephen and Vicky, did, did you pick up that they are not contemporary Earth humans? Yeah, I think that was fairly obvious. Like, they're, 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 they are human, but they're from the future. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, well, no, it's obvious that Stephen, because he's like, well, I know spaceships. Yes, of course. And also... Um, there's a there's quite a funny joke when they find the monk's like rocket launcher aimed over the seaside, right. and Stephen actually like they have met the Saxons at this point, but nonetheless, Stephen asks Vicky if it's an anachronism or not. Right, which is quite interesting actually because she clearly has more idea. He just has no. Yeah, she's travelled a bit. He just has no idea yeah. what time could be like, which I think is quite fun. I think that it's kind of implied that also by whatever time he's from, they don't really know much about this far back in Earth's history yeah, at no, all. Yeah, no, no, I mean, which makes perfect sense. Why would you? What do you make of that? It's a... It's a gun! Of sorts. Trained out to sea, hidden by the bushes. Look, in Saxon times, they, they used swords and bows and arrows, not things like this, didn't they? Yes. You're right. Monk, it must be. Still say there's no point in going back to the monastery. Come on. I certainly, I love the uh, final scene of the monk. Absolutely love that. Lovely. It's just a, the small, the tiny TARDIS is just really funny. It's fantastic. Um, the way they shot that, it, they took a photo of the TARDIS and then they shrunk the photo down and the monk's actually just peering through like a hole cut out in a two-dimensional board. So, is it, so, so the monk's TARDIS is the TARDIS set, but they've modified it a bit? Uh, yeah, basically, they took the doctor's set and then they just filled one corner with any random curio, which works yeah, quite yeah, yeah. well because of the character that's, of the monk. Oh, that's quite interesting. Um, yeah, so I love actually because... Um, so I do LARP, as you know, and I do... Uh, I actually. And I, I help write for a very large LARP um, called Empire LRP, fancy LARP. So I and so I know Faye with, uh, and and you know that's a two thousand odd player LARP, big big, so relatively big as LARPs go. But yeah, very much I feel there's something I sort of feel something of the LARP right about the filler corner full of uh, random. <laughs> so there's and we have a really great team. We do a lot of good set dressing or whatever, and absolutely. We need to set dress this garage tent so it looks like the room of someone who's a time meddling collector. And absolutely yeah. what we would do is just go through the, you know, the, the tat box in our big box of props. And if you're like, oh, have, you know, and, and then and then you would write around the details of that, you know. So I, I just love it. You can see all the joined in a sense, but that's really good. What's interesting to me is wondering how much, like to what extent the cart comes before the horse there. because. In a sense, like Dennis Spooner obviously knows how the show is made, 
but I don't feel like he was writing around that. I think it was more just a gift to the production team that it made so much sense for the character of the month to just bung stuff in there. Well, sure, but but uh, when I say writing, I suppose I'm meaning in the, the the expanded set. When when you when you as a production team dress the set, you are making a uh, a writing choice. Tri- well, I see a what story choice yeah. of your own, right? You are telling the story a bit. Um, so I'm talking about the kind of the collective thing rather than what's strictly the script. Oh. Yes, absolutely. I love the tick box plan. It, 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 it's mildly absurd, but I just love it because it, it sort of the monk has this sinister but mostly quite comic quality, and his big tick list, which ends with Meet King Harold, mm. of here's how I'm going to change time. I just, I, I, it's, there's this real sense of someone who's clearly very powerful and has a lot of capabilities, but is also a little bit like, like it's all a bit haphazard. It's like the monk's list is like a, a prefiguring of the, um, the South Park gag. The... Uh, yeah, I was exactly going to say it's, it's, it's underpants names. That's it. The... Uh, yes, it's, uh, it's just genius. Um, it really says a lot about the, the character. Because he, so obviously, in some ways, you can see him as a precursor to the master. People say that, and beyond their renegade time lords. Well, so, I, so I was look, I was looking it up, and apparently, like in some um, board game or whatever that was released at some point, some time he was described as the master. The the RPG, the really old RPG book, made some very interesting decisions about canon. Right, no, exactly. But the point is that the idea is that no, so he's not like the master. But the point is, like the idea of a renegade time lord begins here. I think you don't get the master necessarily without this episode. I mean, the Doctor himself is a renegade Time Lord. That's true, I suppose. But like, so the, it's interesting, isn't it? Because so he, um, the Doctor is trying to not interfere, but here we have a Time Lord who's willing to interfere, but isn't malicious about it. He's basically like he likes the idea of changing history. Um, and he's just he's just got this genius plan to do it that ends with eight meet King Harold and then he's <laughs> as if like he's gonna be like there we go and there's nothing about like what's it like if the plan ends with meet the king I see no reason why any thinking would be necessary after that it's just delightful um, it's really fun it's like um, his end goal is just sort of like getting the king's signature that's it right. And it doesn't matter what right. happens afterwards. He doesn't have any head for consequences. No, no, absolutely. He's just very clear a character who's just going to do things. It's interesting. Obviously, the show's mythology at this point is nowhere near as established or significant as it later becomes. But even so, introducing, oh, this is the first time we're seeing one of the Doctor's own people still has some import to it even now. So it's a very interesting choice for this is the, how we're going to characterise the first other member of the Doctor's people that we see. Yes. Um, it, it really shows an awareness of what the... Like, like it's, it's very much... Doctor Who is many things, but it's ultimately a show about a time traveller, even though the TARDIS can move in time and space. It's really interesting that, of course, all the monks' tech is uh, Earth tech. And indeed, clearly most of it contemporary with the 60s, which, which is interesting, right? I mean, it's a bit like how... Um, I feel like if you did a modern day version of this episode, you'd have um, retro stuff in there. Yeah, you see what I mean. And I think 
They don't really do... I think he has some... Like, he's got vague sort of antiquity-suggestive things shoved in the back of his TARDIS. I think so, but the um, but like all the stuff he has are like sixties contemporary. Yeah, so there's a bit where you see him cooking on like a camping stove that he's set up in the abbey. Yes, exactly, uh, which is again delightful. Uh, or his little um, first aid kit, uh, which basically he's like giving a guy penicillin. Uh, he's like, "It's penicillin. What's penicillin? Uh, it's like a magic." What What I really like actually, and this is where sort of thought is the way in which the relationship between a, a, just a monk. And normal villagers is is so almost slightly analogous to the Time Lord human relationship that he slips into it really well. I think that's, that's something, yeah. something really interesting there. He, I mean, he pretty much says that he 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 saw that there was an abandoned monastery and it was just a gift because it meant he could assume this persona that would just give him carte blanche to do what he wanted and nobody would interfere with him unless he wanted to see them. Right, because you just got a, you know, you've got an obvious excuse, because it gets so. Uh, you know, so the character is not actually a monk, but he is pretending to be one. That's a really funny running joke in some of the like later extended audio stuff. <laughs> the doctor like calls him the monk, and he isn't. He isn't a monk, and he doesn't dress as a monk right. anymore. Because why would he? There's a bit in one of the audio dramas where the doctor is explaining to his companion, and he says, "Oh, he he calls himself the monk," and the monk goes, "He doesn't, you know." Yeah, that's like. I don't. Um, I mentioned this to you offline, but um, so he's a known comic actor, I think, and he's really funny. Yeah. So uh, Peter Butter, uh, Peter Butterworth, it is Peter Butterworth, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It is Peter Butterworth. So he, I think he's in every single Carry On movie. Obviously, most of those came after this, but yeah, he, he has that, he has that kind of face. He is the face of British sex comedies of the 60s and 70s, basically. Right, 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 exactly. His story of how he got into show business is truly remarkable. Go on. So, during World War II, he was a prisoner of war. He escaped three times, uh, and each time he was recaptured. The third time, he got 27 miles before being recaptured. In the prisoner of war camp, he met another prisoner of war who had a plan to put on a variety show to keep morale up, but also as cover for another escape attempt. He convinced this other guy, whose name I have completely forgotten, annoyingly, convinced Butterworth, who had never performed before, to go on and sing this comedy song to provide noise to cover some other POWs escaping which Butterworth then agreed to this plan that they do this variety show. Butterworth sang a song to cover these other prisoners escaping who got away successfully. Um, And after the war, they stayed friends and this guy became a showbiz producer and cast Butterworth in roles. And they, they both got into show business because of this show that they put on as cover for an escape attempt in the war which is i like i just think that that is a superb story it's just, just, just a great way to get into politics uh politics uh comedy <laughs> that was a good slip so how many other episodes does he appear in uh, he only comes back once uh in the next season in 
the third heart and all Dal- season. Dalek's yeah, working with the Daleks, which is again another kind of so like the Time Meddler is doing so many like new things where it's really solidifying the final bits of the show and the Daleks had like by this point there'd been multiple Dalek stories, but by and large the idea of returning characters and stuff didn't exist. And what's particularly interesting is that the monk coming back in the Daleks master plan is a direct consequence of the Doctor sabotaging his TARDIS in the Time Meddler. And that kind of co- like continuity, this is this is where continuity becomes a thing in Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah, which is really interesting. Um so he wears he's still wearing a monk costume in the Daleks Master Plan, which I guess is it's sort of clearly it's kind of like, well, he's still pretending to be a monk for some reason, I guess. It's a costume he's got. I like that apparently he get his TARDIS gets sabotaged again. Yes. So his chameleon circuit gets messed with and then uh, the Doctor stole his uh, directional unit, stranding him. So uh, you've almost got this chance here, which has never actually happened, of a recurring theme of Monk episodes, where it's always like he's finally got his TARDIS working again, and it always ends with the Doctor breaking his TARDIS once again, but in some other different way. Huh? Huh? What's he done? <sighs> He's taken my dimensional control. He's ruined my time machine. I'm marooned. Marooned. Ten sixty-six. Um, do you think they'd ever have the monk on uh, the TV shows? It doesn't feel like something that you'd see in the Chris Chibnall era. I could have imagined it happening no. under Moffat. Yeah, I, I honestly could have imagined it more under RTD. Well, it's funny, isn't it? RTD left key on canon. See, I can't imagine RTD doing whimsical Time Lords. RTD really went heavy on mythologizing them. I, I didn't actually. Shall we, shall we, shall we, I kind of want to talk about this. Um, what would an RTD Moffat and Chibnall monk look like? Appreciating that they might almost they might reinvent them yeah but let's say for some uh, there's a weird legacy in a will and uh rtd was gonna get a million pounds (laughs) or the show will get a million pounds if someone puts them you know what i mean let's say they have to put the monk in an episode how do they each do it ian levine has put it in his will Uh, yeah right so someone like that has put it in their will i could have imagined under rtd that like he would have done a full farce episode, you know, like a Love and Monsters, but a Time Lord Love and Monsters. Right. So imagine a version of Love and Monsters where it's not the Absorbaloff, but, 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 but the, the monk, monk instead. Does that work? I think it might do. Yeah, I, could, I can see that. I, I can picture it now like Elton meets a Time Lord, but he doesn't meet the Doctor, he meets the monk. Like Linda meet the Linda Linda finally tracked down a time lord, but the time lord they track down is the monk. Well, or you still have it being infiltration. So, so is it so because the absorbloff is pretending to be a human, right? Yeah, yeah. So you have the monk infiltrating Linda as Victor or whatever. Yeah. Um, it becomes apparent he's an alien. You don't get the kind of weirdness of the Absorbaloff, but I am fairly sure you could find. But the monk absolutely feels like the kind he would have some wacky way of 
trapping people or something that lets you do some of the same stuff the Absorbalock Yeah, does. sort of a, probably involving some sort of slightly overreaching special effect by the mill. Right, absolutely. Um, which in many ways is what the Absorbalock is. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I love it. Okay, right, so my, my answer for what does Monk RTD look like is, is Love and Monsters has the Monk in instead. Yeah. Uh, and I think that works well because it's kind of a parody. Um, the difficulty, of course, is uh, he's a time lord, but that doesn't make any sense. Like now, I actually really like the idea of like Elton's little group like meeting the monk, and like it's a time lord, but not the one they were looking for. And I like I, I am now headcanoning that they did meet the monk, and he just like he used them to his own ends without ever telling them who he was. Right, right, right. Yes, right, Moffat. Okay, so what does a moth... Is there anything to say? We're, just, we're not going to worry too much about the fact that the Time Lord aren't present. We're going to yeah, assume yeah, that we can get yeah. around that. Okay, so Moffat, who... Imagining Peter Capaldi opposite the monk is a very entertaining idea. Right, so then my next question is going to be, okay, if it's Moffat, which... And I think it, yeah, I think you're actually very right in your instinct there. It's absolutely got to be Capaldi monk. Um, which, which is a shame, but I feel like if it had happened in like a counterfactual timeline, it would have been opposite Matt Smith in just an episode of them out zanying each other in that kind of mid Smith era. Right. Yeah, 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 it would probably have happened in mid in in the but uh, what is it? Is it season C season seven B? You know when it would have been really interesting to do it season ten. When he's already travelling with Missy? Oh, that's quite in... Is he travelling with Missy in season 10? Yeah, after the Eaters of Light, he starts letting Missy into the TARDIS. Oh, which episode? Is, did, does she go on an adventure? Uh, no, because it goes straight into World Enough and Time. But in a sort of counterfactual reality, you have this episode that's before World Enough and Time, where they go on an adventure right, right. with Missy yeah. and run into the monk, and it's this weird triangle of renegade time lords no i i I think there's too much there i think i think that's personally i think that's too busy um because you are like you might have nardles i I think there's just too much going on yeah Um, yeah probably there is i feel like the moffat monk would be better if moffat was writing it for rtd than if moffat did it whilst he was running the show that's true i just remembered of course that matt smith was a monk very briefly in the Bells of St. John. Oh, of course he was. I, I've blotted the Bells of St. John out of my head, I think. It's all right in every element of it that's not the plot. <laughs> but that is the majority Literally of it. Literally the only thing I can remember is riding a scooter up the gherkin. That is the bit you should not remember. <laughs> <laughs> so, basically, uh, Clara has been given his phone number by someone. We're told a woman, the in, woman the in the shop. The woman in the shop, yeah. So, okay, which I think is meant, we, we later find out is Missy. So let's scratch that. But what if it's the what monk? What if it's the monk? What, what if we change it so that instead of the great intelligence being the mastermind in that whole season, it's the monk? Great. Have we found a way to fix Series 7? Incredible. I mean, you need an entirely different finale. What's the finale? The, the, the name of the Doctor, where the intelligence enters the Doctor's timeline, and then Clara enters the Doctor's timeline to fix it, and that's why she gets splintered. So that could be the monk. Like, the monk wouldn't do anything malicious enough to warrant it, that's the thing. You can't make the monk too malicious or he stops being the monk. No, okay, that's fine, but he could be trying to play a prank on the Doctor. (laughs) 
<laughs> that would be a ridiculous reason for Clara to, to like splinter her whole identity. Okay, but what if it's a prank that goes wrong? Oh, what if it's a prank that goes wrong and the monk actually has to go and be like, help, I think I've accidentally destroyed the doctor. Oh no, T- time is terrible. Right, right. Everywhere I go now, it's really miserable and depressing and I hate it because I've accidentally ruined the doctor's timeline. I actually love this idea that he... Um... There's some, actually something about him that I actually like, which, like, which is you can sign of imagining him as a bit of a... He's a prankster, and then he's exactly the kind of person who would go too far and then suddenly feel really bad about it. Yeah, definitely. So I love the idea that he... Um, the season is him continually... Like, he's kind of the arch baddie, but a lot of it is basically him... Because he's relative... He's, relatively amoral but he does care about people to some degree right certainly in the in the in the time method. yeah i mean he he cares about people because they're fun basically right exactly um so if you have him if you establish the monk in a couple of episodes in season seven as doing this kind of thing if you have a couple of episodes which turn out to be the monk all along um i think you could write that in such a way that it was satisfying and didn't just feel like a repeat if, if they get it in different mm. ways and then you have an episode kind of open with the end of a prank but it really goes wrong and you can imagine like a very very moffat pre-credits thing where it's like monk escapades throughout history and they're all really depressing and miserable because they've changed because the doctor's not there that's very Moffat. Well, except you'd have to establish... Would it be pre- pre-credits? Because you'd, you'd want to show him eliminating the Doctor. Oh, well, okay, no, you, so you don't show him eliminating the Doctor. You show the, the, the monk escapades, which aren't fun. And you don't explain what's gone wrong until midway through the episode where you reveal that in a timeline... Oh, so I was... I was imagining the classic cliffhanger into the finale of the previous episode would be... Oh, the doctor gets okay, no. the doctor's timeline goes kaput. Crash into credits. That's also interesting, and I, uh, that's also quite interesting. I like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am liking this more and more because you kind of set the monk up to almost be the hero of the, well, not the hero, but like because kind of the monk is a foil to the doctor, but in a different way than the master. You kind of have him having to go and get the companion. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Get Clara, I'm basically like, come on, and and he's just not as good at it as the doctor. That's kind of the joke. That would be amazing. So like. I feel like this is interesting because I said earlier that I feel like the Time Meddler prefigures the Moffat era a lot. So it's interesting yeah, like yeah. how much more time we've spent. We haven't even talked about what the Monk and the Chibnall is like. No. And we talked briefly about RTD, but it's so easy to imagine the Monk under Moffat. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so weird that he didn't do him. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because... I mean, you know, if I think about, is the Rani the other sort of one that gets mentioned as as a time? Yeah, so the the Rani. No one has ever convinced me that the Rani is interesting. Well, the thing about the Rani that's interesting is that um, actually every single character in the revised series of Doctor Who is secretly the Rani. Right. (laughs) I mean, that is that is is it was the ongoing the ongoing joke, isn't it? Literally. And I swear at first it wasn't even a joke. People were like, maybe it's the Rani. Yeah. It's like, no, it's never the never Rani. Never. She's a mad scientist, right? That's kind of her deal. Yeah, she's an, well, she's not even mad. She's just amoral. She's just a scientist who's only interested in right. the science. She's, she's just got no scientific ethics, basically. Right, okay, cool. Which is interesting, but like, you know, that, 
The, the, the issue in the revised series is that uh, having a Time Lord show up is always such a big deal. Yeah. That, a, that if you're telling an amoral scientist plot, why have it be a Time Lord? Yeah. Whereas the monk is not that. Monk that isn't, isn't true. So what I'm wondering about is, okay, so if we've got the monk showing up, how do we make that work? The Time Lords or whatever. I'm wondering if we can also fix uh, the time of the Doctor. The um, the great drawing up of loose ends that is the time of the Doctor. It, it just, it's it, 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 it's also a Christmas episode, I think. Yes, it's set in the the uh, the town on Trenzalore that goes by the name Christmas. Yeah, I mean, we could, I think we just all agree that, that there's really little of the time of the Doctor that's usefully salvageable. I rewatched it recently and actually the emotional beats of the story do work better than I remembered. But you still have the fact that like the big emotional climax of that story is Clara talking to a wall. Wouldn't it be better if Clara has to persuade the monk to like go through the crack in time where he won't be able to come back, but he'll be able to tell them this is the right place, you need to save the doctor. Right. Exactly. Especially if he was sent out as a scout. And, and like, like broadly, he convinced... Because he's a con artist, he convinced the Time Lords yes. in the bubble to send him out as a scout. Uh, which is why he's been there for the whole season. Uh, and he would absolutely, definitely let them out. He was literally only meant to leave for, like, an hour. And instead, he's just gone off and had joys for, like, a decade. Yeah, yeah. Which sounds <laughs> absolutely correct. I might also be inclined... To, I'm, not, I'm not sure if he should have a TARDIS or he has a succession of different time machines that he's stealing from other races. His TARDIS is programmed to make one trip and then go straight back into the crack, which is... And he's just avoided doing that through the whole season, and that's what Clara then convinces him to do. Oh, that makes sense. Right, so... But he's got to have a time machine somehow, so I just like the idea of him stealing, it, stealing a succession of other time machines yeah. from races, which, which like, each have their own like humorous downsides. Or the Doctor just keeps sabotaging each one when he meets them. Right, no, no, precisely. Yeah, each one, like, he has to get another one and... um, No, I... Right, great, no, I I, I love this. Um, So what we've basically established is not only does the monk perfectly fit Moffat's style of Who, it fits better than what Moffat actually did. Well, there we go. So, just to conclude this discussion... Chibnall monk or why we think Chibnall just couldn't do the monk okay so first of all because it it pertains to this I have a, a fun bit of trivia for you go on apart from the first seven letters of the titles how does the time meddler relate to the timeless children um go on there was a time meddler was directed by Douglas Camfield uh-huh. who is one of the faces of the Morbius Doctors who got canonised in The Timeless Children. Excellent. Good. Great. On, on the topic of Douglas Camfield, quickly, uh, and ostent- on what was ostensibly the topic of the Time Meddler, but has mostly just been the monk, the monk chat. It's funny because usually when I talk about the Time Meddler, I don't actually talk about the monk very much. I talk about the format changes and stuff that were going on. So it's interesting that you steered me in a different direction with well, that's, monk talk. That's kind of why you've got me here, I think. I, I'm an ingenue's eyes. Watching it back, it doesn't look very good. Like, I don't think it's Douglas Canfield's fault, but it feels like, visually, a lot of other 60s stories look a lot more bold and adventurous, and the time yeah. meddler looks it's very constrained. Dull. I have yeah. a feeling that they were shooting on very tight sets where he couldn't move the camera around much without exposing stuff that he couldn't show. 
I like the bit where the guy, they just sort of wriggle out of a bush. One of the most boring <laughs> shots ever. So I enjoyed the episode of the whole. You know, I wasn't sure how I'd find it. Because old, old Hugh is, old TV is old, it's just slower than my modern, fast-paced mind. I was actually kind of interested in what you expected with regard to pace and stuff before watching it. So I found, when I've tried to watch old Who before, it is just quite... Because particularly the serial format, it's just quite slow. I, I think I wouldn't have found it if I was sitting down to watch it every week at tea time. Do you know what I mean? Do you think it would have been more a bit more compelling and mysterious if you didn't already know about the monk and what he was and stuff? Or do you think you'd have sort of... It would have still been fairly obvious to modernise what was going on. Um, I think it's really hard to say. Because um... when they step into the TARDIS, I had this sudden thing where I was like, "Oh, that's that's the end of the episode. That's an odd sort of just stopping point." Like I'm so au fait with what's going on that I didn't even register that it was a reveal. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um... Out of interest, do you know anything about the st- the story Earthshock? Um, is that the one where, where yeah, what's his okay. face dies? If you hadn't known anything about it, I was going to suggest we should watch that one. No, sorry. The only thing I know about it is Adric dies. <laughs> you can't really... Yeah. <laughs> you, you're divine well, okay. <laughs> Um No, I, I, unfortunately, I do know that Adric dies. Now I'll never know if I was right. Okay, uh, incidentally, I need to go quite soon. Um, but okay. Well, let's wrap this up. Um, and and what are we going to be discussing next time? What's next on the agenda? So, I would, originally, I was going to ask you to sort of guide us, but then I did get the notion in my head that we should jump right to the other end of the timeline and do the Paul McGann TV movie. Absolutely great. I've always wanted to see that. Okay, so um, do I need to know anything going into the, the TV movie, or is by its nature I can just go at it? By its nature, you like it certainly isn't the jumping on point it should have been, and that's an interesting thing we can talk about. But for that reason, I think you should just go straight into it. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for listening, potential future listeners. Yeah, um, looking forward to this and um, looking forward to next time. Incidentally, just whilst we've been talking, though, I have worked out what the monk would be doing in a Chibnallier episode. Oh, go on. So... Basically, what you'd have is um, the doctor decides to prepare a Sunday roast for her fam and the monk, just as a silly prank, he f***s up the seasoning. He's the timer meddler. Relative Digressions is a 2020 production by Renna Robson and Felicia Barker. You can find us on Twitter at WhoDigressions, on Facebook under Relative Digressions, or email us at relative.digressions at gmail.com. The music is Sonic 1.0 by Sonic, S-O-N-N-I-K, with additional sound from Red Sky Lullaby and Luffy. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in the future. Oh, 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 oh,